0: A friend of mine mentioned that their, uh, their church prays for the kids and the teachers as they go out. Do you mind if we do that this morning? Amen, let's do that. Father God, we commit this next generation to you, these young folks, Lord, we just pray that you, um, you guide their thoughts this morning, that you manifest yourself tangibly and, and in a very real manner through the lessons they learned today. Father, I pray for the teachers, that you would give them wisdom um, and insight that you would help them to teach to the kids level, that they would understand you better, uh, that you'd be glorified. Uh, Lord, we just commit Children's Church to you this morning and ask that you do what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. That sounds like a pretty big echo. Can we get rid of some of that? Well, those of you who know me well, uh, well, good morning first. Um, If you know me well, I'll tell you the first thing, that eschatology is not my strong suit. I say it kind of flippantly, but I really don't care. <laughs> it's going to happen how it happens. Um, all I need to know in the end is that God wins. Um, God wins. And so it's kind of ironic that my passage today is, is Revelation 5. Um, however, it's probably my favorite chapter in the New Testament. Um, we've already got a taste of it through the worship. Um, it's just the, the heavenly scene of worship for the risen Christ. It just moves me when I read it, so uh, that's why we chose it today. Well, we can get caught up in the symbolism of Revelation. Um, I try not to do that. Uh, and as I was studying this week, trying to decide where, where do I wanna go, with, what's the focus, I was rem- reminded of an old anecdote. You've probably heard it before. Uh, it might be as old as I am. Uh, but there's the story of a, a children's Sunday school teacher and he's trying to teach an object lesson to the kids uh, and he's using the squirrel as an example. And so he says, okay, I'm gonna describe this thing and when you get it, I want you to raise your hand and and shout it out when I call on you. So he starts and he says, it's a little animal that lives in the trees. It gathers nuts. No answer, so he he goes on a little bit further. Uh, It's gray, it's got a bushy tail. Well, by then, the kids are starting to look at each other, but they, they won't spell the answer out. They won't shout the answer out. There's some uncertainty for some reason. He's, he's curious, so he keeps on going. And he goes, they jump from limb to limb, and they chitter and chatter, and their tails flick when they get real excited. And you can see, finally, one little kid raises his hand, and uh, the teacher calls on him. He says, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. So... <laughs> When I think of Revelation, that's really all you need to know is Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. So I'm going to read the, uh, the passage this morning, and I think I'm going to read the passage. I'm using the wrong button. Um, I'm going to read the passage. Now, the, the books of the Bible were written to be circulated among the churches, uh, and they would be read there. So most people heard the scripture. They didn't read the scripture. Now, I'm not going to tell you you can't stand and read along with me, but what I'd like you to do this morning, uh, and you can stand, but I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, so I don't want anybody to fall over. Um, But just close your eyes and picture the scene as the original hearers would have heard it. I I want you to hear the words John, just picture as he describes how he heard them, uh, when he turns his head, what he saw. Uh, I I think you'll get a, a deeper, fuller picture. So again, I'm not going to tell anybody you can't read with me, uh, but I would really like you to just to, to soak in the, the picture that's being painted. So Revelation 5, yeah, by all means, if you want to stand, that's great. I think it shows honor to God's word. Um, but don't, don't feel obligated, as I just guilted you into standing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven And on the earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Lord God, we just pray that our spirits are moved today, that we see Jesus in this passage, and that he be magnified and glorified and praised as worthy, as we read father i I pray for myself this morning um a certain sense of eloquence to not be a stumbling block to what you're trying to say to this congregation and lord for all of us that we'd have open ears and soft hearts that your word would find a fertile ground to land on and that we would be changed from the inside out we commit this time to you and we just ask in jesus name that you would honor and bless it amen so, our passage, uh, Revelation, uh, it, the word comes from a Greek word, apokalypsis. You probably recognize that as the word apocalypse, and it just simply means to either unveil, or to uncover, or to reveal. So the first question that I have when I read that is, well, what's being revealed? Maybe I'm not that bright, but I, I think all of us uh, could, could uh, Ask that question. So, thankfully, John answers that question. Very first verse, very first chapter. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you might be thinking, I already know about Jesus. I've read the Gospels, and it's true. There, we get a picture of the Word made flesh. We get a picture of the um, the the one who was crucified buried and resurrected on our behalf. We get a picture of Jesus at the ascension even. Uh, But typically, it's a picture of Jesus incarnate as a human being walking on the earth. Um, Nothing wrong with that. But sometimes I think we get so fixated on that that we forget that there's the other part to Jesus that even now he's reigning in heaven in his glorified body with the Father. Um, The attributes are still there. He still loves us. He still is, uh, shows humility, he still shows meekness, uh, but he's different. Uh, I think all we have to do is to go back and look at the Apostle John. I think we get a certain sense of comfort in Jesus, friend of sinners, again, not wrong, just maybe a little incomplete, because the Apostle John, the Apostle that walked with Jesus for three years on the earth, dined with Jesus, uh, ministered with Jesus, Uh, was in a very intimate personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, The apostle who reclined on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, the first thing he does, if you remember chapter 1, when he sees the glorified Jesus, bam, right to the floor at Jesus' feet in worship. So I submit there's going to be a difference, and we can't get too comfortable in our idea of Jesus the friend of sinners, again, not wrong, but slightly incomplete. And I think it helps when we have a fuller picture of the risen Christ that's reigning now in heaven. Uh, I think we get a a sense of our own unworthiness when we're confronted with the glorified Christ. I think of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Uh, we see John, again, the first chapter of Revelation where he hits the deck in worship to this glorified Jesus. So again, uh, if anything, I hope we get a new focus or a new understanding of Jesus. Well, we're going to be in Chapter 5. Chapter 4 is actually a transition from the seven letters to the seven churches in Chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 4, John was taken to the throne throne room of God. And there he's introduced to God, and the emphasis is on God of creation. So God created the world. Uh, And that's the emphasis there. He's the one that sustains the world and all of his creation. That's the emphasis. And now as we move to chapter 5, we're going to see that God is still on the throne. But this time the focus turns a little bit, and it's focused on his role in our redemption. Now, it's a story that has its beginning in the book of Genesis. And this is very important to remember it's been the theme for, in Scripture from the very beginning to the very end. Uh, it's the story of our redemption. We think of God creating in Genesis, and then Adam and Eve's sin. We have the fall, their separation from uh, the living God. And God has spent the entire time, the entire part of recorded history, working his plan of redemption. So it's important that we remember it's in the very first book of the Bible and continues throughout. But it's also it didn't catch God by surprise, you've heard that before, it's not plan B, the, the redemption, it was preordained from the beginning of the world. Now, I'm going to give you a verse from 1 Peter, I want you to look up verse 18 and 19, but I didn't want to uh, spoil the rest of the sermon because it flat out tells you what I'm going to preach on for 40 minutes, so uh, verse 20, uh, just the, the, it didn't just start at the beginning in Genesis, this is preordained from before The beginning of recorded history. From the beginning, you can't say the beginning of time because God is outside of time. But it's always been in the mind of God. So, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. That's not the verse I wanted. Did I uh, hang on? Oh, okay. I see what I did. This is the one I wanted. Nope. Okay. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So he was foreknown before the foundation of the world is what I wanted to get, and I just gave you the rest of the passage, so uh, now you don't have to read it. So, uh, again, this was on God's mind from the very beginning of time. I I had someone um, ask me, uh, uh, they thought they were going to trick me, but the question was, which came first, forgiveness or sin? I'm going to give you just a second to think about that. The answer is forgiveness. Sin did not occur until Adam and Eve fell, but God had already forgiven us. He had already set his plan in motion and decided that we would be forgiven. So this is, this is a concept that predates the book of uh, our Bible, pre- predates uh, the advent of man. He, he planned this from the very beginning. So again, God created perfection, uh, and then man fell when Adam and Eve sinned, and God has been interacting Uh, with his fallen creature ever since uh, working a plan to bring about restoration and again uh, I know I've mentioned uh, the scarlet thread if you ever get a chance to read it uh, it just traces Christ's blood throughout the scriptures the the idea of a ransom and a sacrifice but this passage today is where the scarlet thread meets what is called the golden cord of Jesus's kingship Uh, and that's important in this chapter so again John's still in the throne room of God, and the first thing he notices is a scroll in the right hand of the Father. Um, Now, there's a a concept of form follows function, and as Westerners, we often get caught up in the details. We wanna know the exact words on the scroll, how big was it, how how many letters it contained, why the seven seals, was it clay, was it wax, uh, that does not matter. You're going to ask me. I'm going to say, "Don't know, don't care," um, because it's the function, and that's what we want to look at today. What's the function of the scroll? So uh, it's a symbol, but it's easily understood. It would have been understood by John's readers. He would, they would have instantly understood what John was saying because in the Roman world of the day, this would have described a will or a some some sort of a, sort of a contract, a title deed. Uh, something official and and governmental. So they would have understood it. But we do get a couple of clues. So again, I I said I don't really care, I don't don't know and I don't care, but we do get some clues what's included in it. Uh, But it's all gonna lead us to why, why the scroll is there. So the first thing we have to think about is, um, since God is the one holding the scroll, uh, it contains some sort of decree from the king of the universe. Now, again, a couple of clues from the rest of the book of Revelation help us to narrow it down, uh, and then I will look at uh, a passage from the Old Testament, too. But from, gen, uh, from Revelation, in the chapter immediately following chapter 5, which would be chapter 6, if you're following, uh, we get a sense of the content of the scrolls as that each one of them are, are broken open, and we see that a corresponding event occurs uh, that has something to do with planet Earth. So I'm not gonna go into them, I'll let you read them, but, but scroll is broken, an event takes curse takes place on Earth's, Earth. Then we read in chapter 10, um, as we continue along just kind of building the case, it says, but it, that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, and here's the key, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets." So, again, you have to go back to the Old Testament. God's been working this plan. What, what was it the prophets were saying? Generally, it was, a, it was an admonition uh, to return to the Lord wholeheartedly, and he would give some picture of the end of the days. Uh, continuing on, Revelation 15 clarifies it a little bit further. Uh, he says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. And here it is, for with them the wrath of God is finished. God is gonna culminate the age with his wrath poured out against all unrighteousness, as Paul would say. So again, the idea is that through the realities of the symbols in the book, uh, what they represent, God's plan is being fulfilled, and that plan in large part is about the finishing or completion of his wrath. And when we take all of this together, it's safe to say that the scroll represents, then, the plan of God to bring ultimate justice to the earth by unleashing his wrath on unrepentant sinners, but that's not all, it's to lavish reward and blessing on the saints and peace. So that interpretation uh, sort of comes from the Old Testament again. And this is really important to keep in mind, again, this is from beginning to end, Uh, where God is leading. So he gave the prophets uh, some idea of what this would look like further on. The uh, prophet Ezekiel, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, uh, he wrote, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. That's the exact same thing we see in Revelation. Uh, And there was were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe." So again, it's clearly uh, uh, the similar vision, the same vision in Revelation 5. It's following a similar pattern, uh, what we see in Ezekiel. And again, the scroll in Ezekiel had to do with judgment. And I think it's an easy correlation. Again, everything the prophets foretold has its fulfillment here. Uh, it would be the same is true for the scroll in Revelation 5. So again, whatever you want to call it, a will or a title deed, uh, it's clear that the idea that God holds a book in his hand uh, in which the history and the future of the world is already written, uh, it's God who initiates, it's God who controls, and it's God who will fulfill uh, all the way to the consummation of history, uh, and that no one can thwart his plan so one of the takeaways i I got from this today or this for this morning was that god's sovereign over the affairs of men god's sovereignty is on full display here there's no one who can thwart his plan and history will proceed just as it's written uh just as he stated again from the before the beginning of written time uh, god is in control so then if it's a sealed scroll um and as again, the, the number seven in, in Revelation typically means completion or, or perfection. Uh, you may probably know that. So seven seals, it means it's perfectly sealed. No one can open it. And so they're looking for someone who is worthy. Who is worthy and will be able to break the scroll and carry out the plan of God that's presented there. But as this verse indicates, uh, there's no one that's worthy to open it. Um, And when it says, in the heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, uh, as it said in verse three, I believe, um, that just means your universality. There is no one, period, who can open that scroll. No one is worthy, no one can be found, no one from humanity, none of the angels, no one. Um, there, and it, it, it's just again re emphasizing the seven seals this, uh, on this scroll that it's it shut and it's shut for good. So, with the impossibility of uh, the appearance of impossibility of the scroll being open, uh, John begins to weep. Now, there are several interpretations as to why. One is that he feels like the, the plan is thwarted. Uh, we cannot go to the end of time. Uh, God's, God's um, plan for humanity has just ended because we can't find anyone to open the scroll. But I personally, I think there's another aspect to John's weeping, and I think that's the biblical, the scriptural um, um, idea, uh, Paul and the Old Testament, again, that there is none righteous. No, not one. I think he comes full-faced with mankind's sinfulness, Uh, our own inability to do anything good, our complete and utter dependence on the work of Jesus Christ uh, to ensure our salvation so that we can live forever with the the king of the universe. For whatever the reason, John is weeping because no one is found that can open the scroll. And again, Remember that don't our interest shouldn't be so much focused on the scroll and what it represents But it's the one who's worthy to take it So the question again, is there anyone who can open the scroll? Thankfully we get the answer to that right after after it's asked so uh, Revelations 5 uh, 5 through 7 and one of the elders said to me weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So it's important to remember, again, we need to emphasize another point, form over function. Uh, someone is gonna wanna debate who are the 24 elders. Uh, again, don't know, don't care. Um, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of how this happens, or, or what happens here, and causes dissension and, and quarreling. It's fine, you know, to have a friendly back and forth with it, but what happens, I, I've heard these are the 12 tribes of Judah represented, Represented and the twelve apostles. Well, one—if this is the apostle John, I'm just thinking—if this is the apostle John writing, and he's one of the elders as one of the uh, the apostles, I'm thinking he would have recognized himself. Uh, if you want to call it the twelve tribes of Judah, uh, then you've got another problem: it, Does it include Levi and Joseph, or does it include Ephraim and Manasseh as they replace Levi and Judah in some of the genealogies? So to get caught up on the 24 elders and who they are, who they aren't, uh, and let that cloud your picture of who Jesus is and what's happening here. Uh, I'd encourage you not to do that. The 24 elders, obviously, they're exalted humans. These are like the best of the best, or else they wouldn't be elders. And yet, they're not worthy to open the scroll. So don't, don't lose the, the form for the function in this case. So again, uh, we find the answer to the question, uh, who's worthy to open the scroll? And we find three distinct figures mentioned here. We have the lion from the tribe of Judah, Uh, we have the root of David, and we have the lamb looking as though it had been slain. Well, these are all rooted in the Old Testament again. Again, God's plan from the beginning of time, and he's given indication after indication after indication of what was gonna happen. And here we are at the fulfillment. So the thing with all three of these, there's a, a view of high Christology, and that simply means that Jesus was uh, appointed or, or anointed. The anointed one is what Messiah means, or the Christ. Messiah, the Hebrew term. Christ, the, the uh, Greek term for the anointed one of God. It just indicates his high kingly status as the son of God. So all three of these titles point to the Christology of Jesus. We have uh, the line of the tribe of Judah, and that's found in Genesis 49, verses nine through 10. Uh, Israel is talking to his children, uh, and this is the blessing he bestows upon Judah. He says, Judah is a lion's cub from my prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. So there we have the idea of Judah being a lion, but then, It continues, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So again, the idea that this lion will rule forever, rule and reign forever, is found as early as Genesis again. And we know that a lion projects power, right? Strength, courage. Uh, We call him the king of the beasts for a reason. Um, But the, the imagery and the fact that it'll have a scepter that will never depart from him indicates that he will be this uh, powerful ruler forever. And then we come to the idea of the root of David again. That's found in, mostly in Isaiah 11, where he's there, it's called the root of Jesse. Jesse, as you may remember, is, is David's father, but it's the same thing. The kingly line will come from Judah and through David. So it's indicating the same thing his claim to kingship, uh, and that the ruler will come from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. Uh, and again, this is a fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy given centuries earlier um, than what we're reading now in, in the heavenly realm in Revelation 5. So I, te- we, I think we tend to make the biblical characters, especially the, the ones that are uh, prominent, Paul, John, as these super-Christians, but really, honestly, they're people just like us. So I think when John hears of the line of the tribe of Judah, I don't know about you, but I would have some kind of an image, a royal, stately, maybe not a, a literal lion, but definitely robes, crown, uh, sash, sword, whatever in your mind a king looks like with, uh, with power and, and might. Um, so putting yourself in John's there, he's expecting something and then he turns and what does he see? He sees a lamb looking as though it had been slain. Well, Jesus says the lamb is a title based on a whole host of Old Testament verses. I don't have time to go through them all, actually. Uh, but again, it's worth mentioning once again, the entirety of Scripture has been pointing forward to this exact moment. Um, the Lamb is a designation, if you remember John's Gospel, uh, early in in chapter 1, John refers to uh, of Jesus as, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of The world, right. So this has been God's plan again. The whole intent. God is the king, and he came as a lamb to take away the sin. Uh, There's no argument that this figure is Jesus Christ. Um, He's the one who was slain as the lamb of God. Uh, He's the one who told his disciples on the evening before the slaying, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We see that same idea in Revelation 5. The word overcome here in this passage can also be translated conquered, uh, and that's the word we find in, in Revelation 5. Jesus has conquered the world. Well, then that leads to the question, at least in my mind, how does a lamb conquer the world? I mean, We t- typically picture a lamb as a complete almost antithesis of a lion, meek and mild, um, afraid of its own shadow, s- sort of, Um, but the imagery, uh, and I'd like to share, it's one of my favorite passages from the Old Testament. In fact, I spoke on it uh, a while back. Uh, If I had to pick an Old Testament passage as a favorite, Isaiah 53, um, and the image that comes from there, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. See, he opened not his mouth. This is the picture of the suffering servant. So again, in Jesus' incarnation, he came to suffer on our behalf uh, like a lamb that was slaughtered. The, the imagery, again, is throughout the Old, Old Testament and the New Testament. And the, Jesus says this suffering servant then is picture perfect as the lamb. Um, But there's something else about this meek lamb that we learn from this passage and that we need to keep in mind again. And John tells us in verse 6 that he saw a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Now, if you're familiar with farm animals, uh, this sort of sounds like a bizarre mutation, doesn't it? Uh, Lambs do not have horns. Uh, They have two eyes, not seven. Uh, So why? Why seven eyes seven horns now this is where the symbology you interpret scripture with scripture uh, we actually can know what these symbols mean so a horn throughout the Old Testament is, is a symbol of power if the horn is power and again the number seven I discussed it if, if I if you have seven horns then that means you have ult, ultimate complete power complete control um, and then the eyes obviously eyes what do we do we see with eyes so this is complete seeing complete vision So, two attributes of God. Anybody want to uh, take a guess? Jesus' omnipotence and his omniscience. The Lamb sees everything and has complete power. Uh, I'll come back to the the thought of seeing everything. It's going to be really important as uh, we discuss his worthiness to open the the scroll. But again, uh, this would have been very familiar to the Jews of the day who knew their scriptures. Uh, It's an image... That it even has its roots in the Old Testament. Uh, I keep mentioning favorite passages. Maybe I only know about three of them, and that's why they're my favorite. But <laughs> Zechariah three, which I also spoke on once. Um, uh, it, it, Zechariah is is, uh, um, is a prophet. The the uh, priest, high priest Joshua, is standing before God. He's filthy. They change his clothes. They give him rags, uh, clothes of righteousness. Uh, again, nothing, nothing Joshua could do there. It was Jesus clothing him in righteousness. But there's a uh, verse 9, Zechariah sees a stone with seven eyes. The, the verbiage, the, the concept would have been familiar to John's readers um, in, in Revelation. It says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a sec- single day. This is a stone with seven eyes, all seeing, uh, and the promises to remove the iniquity of the land. So again, together, these are designations of of two of Jesus' attributes, divine attributes, uh, omniscience and omnipotence. And again, we have to remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about Jesus, and if you're familiar with chapter 1, he's described very differently here as the Lion of Judah and the Lamb that was slain. Than he was when John encountered him in chapter one. Chapter one, his. Sorry. Uh, chapter one, he encountered Jesus in a form that most closely resembles Daniel, um, the Ancient of Days, uh, in his glory and might. You could kind of say he's scary in, in chapter one. Um, so, why the difference? Again, the, the idea of form following function. Um, both visions were communicated through, to John through um, uh, symbolic images, uh, and they seemed to emphasize different things. So I think the key here to the interpretation of why Jesus is pictured as he is, as the lamb, again, is that scroll, and the fact that the lamb is the one taking the scroll. So I'm gonna go ahead and jump to chapter six. The very final verses there tell us that the scroll is being opened, And there we read that the people of the earth were calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand the wrath of the Lamb? I think John was very intentional. Jesus was very intentional communicating this particular symbol to John for a very particular reason. The Lamb is the one who is all-powerful, knows all things, and is worthy to take the scroll that carries out then the Lamb's final act of wrath on an unbelieving world. So it confirms the identity of the scroll. It's God's decree of ultimate justice, which has to, because of sin, include God's wrath. But here, it's not simply God's wrath, it's the wrath of the Lamb. So it's their wrath. That is, it's the wrath of God and the Lamb. Therefore, another attribute of Christ, tied up in his Christology, uh, it's important that the Lamb have complete power, which would be represented by the seven horns, and complete knowledge of what has and is happening throughout the earth. And all of this is simply in keeping, again, with the fact that he is also the king the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and the Root of David. Well, we get a sense of this in Psalm 2, uh, where it tells us about the coming Messiah from David's line. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." I hate to keep emphasizing a point, but maybe it needs to be said. This has been God's plan from the very beginning. The Savior's wrath, God has appointed this slain lamb who has all power, all vision, to carry out his plan, and only those who accept the Son will be with him in eternity. The rest are going to face the wrath of God. Well, Paul, moving to the New Testament, spoke of the Messiah's role in the coming judgment in Acts. There in chapter 17, he writes, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Speaking of, Jesus, thank you. These are precisely the realities John was reminded of through this vision and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the sea again, universality, every creature is every creature, and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Now again, I think the part of this chapter that moves me is the worship and we have to think about what's being described here here uh in this chapter in this in this passage so on the one hand we're seeing the response of heaven and earth we're seeing the response of all creation to the solution to the reality that god's will will be done on earth as in as it is in heaven and it's the lamb the messiah the christ who will carry out this divine mission of ultimate justice. But on the other hand, what we find here is a stunning revelation of the Lamb's worthiness. These verses fully answer the question, why is the Lamb worthy? Why is He alone worthy? Well, verse 5 told us that He could open the scroll because He conquered. But just so there's no misunderstanding about what this means that He's conquered, verse 9 expanded on that thought. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It was because he willingly gave his life, and it was by his blood that he bought us back, he purchased us. The Lamb Jesus Christ is worthy because he did what no other Davidic king could certainly do, No other human being, no matter how exalted we may want to make them, in the case of maybe the 24 elders even, no other human could do this. He was perfectly obedient to God every second of every day of his entire earthly life. And he continues that way in heaven now. And because of his perfect obedience, he alone was able to give his life as a ransom in order to redeem or to reclaim or to rescue people from every region. the cross where the Lamb was slain, the day His blood was shed, that was and is the ultimate victory, and He alone has conquered sin and death. And again, as the perfect man without sin, God has appointed Him to perfectly, perfectly judge the sin of all mankind. But His worthiness is also evident from the worship He receives. Verse 12 contains... Uh, one of one of only two sevenfold blessings found in Revelation, uh, and this is important. Worthy is the Lamb, who's being referenced. It's the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, and wisdom. So, where is the other occasion of that sevenfold blessing? It's in chapter seven, verse twelve who's being addressed, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. So now, there have been he- heresies throughout history. There are some now who e- would even say, God, uh, Jesus was a great prophet, a good teacher, uh, but they'll deny his deity. We have here both the Lamb and God the Father being ascribed the same worship. Now. I don't have time to take you there, but two times in Revelation, in chapter 19 and chapter 22, John is corrected by angels when he goes to worship them. You may remember their words to him, you must not do that, worship God. Uh, I can remember in Acts, it was Barnabas and Paul, I believe, where the men were going to worship them. They were going to offer sacrifices. Men don't do that, we're men like you. No one is ascribed worship. Except God. And yet we find that no one rebukes Jesus in this scene for accepting the worship. So what's the conclusion? Jesus is God, right? Creatures do not worship other creatures. Only the creator is to be worshiped. So is anyone worthy? That's the question I asked today. Jesus Christ alone is worthy uh, and he's not just because of his perfect humanity, uh, his sinless, complete obedience to the Father, but it's also because of his perfect deity. Perfect man, perfect God. He's both worthy to take the scroll and he's worthy to worship. So typically I'd finish up with some kind of a uh, very practical idea for us to implement for our, our um, application. I think practical application is very important to sort of reinforce the message. Uh, I don't have anything to do for you today. Um, but what I would like, it can be summed up, uh, my, my one goal for this morning summed up in one question, how will you respond? So having made sense of the main thing in the scene in Revelation 5, I just want us to think about how this vision should impact our spiritual our spiritual vision or how we see God and then how we respond. So it also should bring to mind how do we see ourselves and how do we see the world around us. So I just want to look at two aspects real quick uh, and, then, and then leave you with a challenge. Um, when we think of Jesus, when you think of him as the Lamb of God, of his loving sacrifice and his cleansing blood, When you think of him as the lion of the tribe of Judah or the root of David, when you think of his authority, when you think of his coming judgment and wrath, does it make you worship? Does it drive you towards praise and adoration? Does it make you offer thanksgiving for being saved from the coming wrath? Or conversely, do you tremble thinking about the coming wrath? Do you wonder if any of these things I've even said are true. Just thinking about what we've seen here and the worship Jesus has received. When you think of of his complete authority, uh, being the executor of God's wrath and judgment and the salvation of mankind, does that deepen our understanding of who he is? Does it give us a new appreciation of the need for obedience and holiness in our own lives? Jesus lived the perfect, obedient holy life Uh, we're called to do the same as an honor to him so the second thing uh, aside from a focus on ourselves and how we view Christ and how it informs our worship of him is to think about the coming judgment and the state of the world we live in when we think of the wrath and judgment to be poured out does it change the way we view those around us the lost who don't know Jesus When Jesus came and he said, I came to seek and to save the lost, the word for lost is ruined or destroyed. So are we willing to look at the lost as potentially being ruined or destroyed in the wrath and the judgment to come? And if so, what are we gonna do about it? I don't think these are mutually exclusive thoughts. I think they go hand in hand uh, in terms of a right response to Jesus. Our hearts, cannot be full of praise for Jesus and at the same time fail to have his heart for the lost. I don't think you can do it. Almost every time I speak, Romans 12, 1 pops out in some way or another. I have favorite passages. I have a favorite verse. Um, I think it's appropriate again today, and it's there that Paul writes, in view of his great mercies, Offer yourselves a living sacrifice, for this is a true act of spiritual worship. I had a friend of mine point out to me recently that in some versions it says it's a reasonable act of service, and I submit this morning that when we consider what the lion of the tribe of Judah gave up to become the lamb that was slain for us, it does indeed seem to be a small act of reasonable service to offer ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, and the Lamb that was slain. Amen? Let's pray and then turn it over to you guys. Lord God, I give thanks for what you have done for us, for who you are. Lord, and as a reasonable act of service, God, I just pray that as we leave this place, we take your words to heart uh, from Matthew that we let our lights so shine before men that they have no choice but to glorify you because you, you alone, are worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.